kind of connecting some dots with the book of Amos, but I'm also going to be in several other passages, and I'll try to make sure that you know where I'm at when I'm going to be there. So um, how many of you have been here for one of our weeks that we've been talking about, the most famous book in the Bible, Famous Amos? And one of these times, I need to bring you chocolate chip cookies. I really do. Um, I just think it would be appropriate after I've teased you about Famous Amos. Um, so really, there we've talked about two of the main themes in the book of Amos. The first one that we talked about is the, the theme of justice and how the judgment of God came upon the people of God because they were not standing up for justice. And I think that's a, a message that the church needs to hear in the day and age that we live in. The second major theme that we've kind of looked at, this will be the third time that we've looked at that, is the theme of worship. And so you have this, this idea that God's upset with the people of God because they don't stand up when there's injustice. And he basically says, hey, all the stuff that you're doing, all of your festivals, all of your ceremonies, all of your worship, it's just absolute trash. Because the way that you live your life Monday to Saturday doesn't line up with what you're saying on Sunday. And because of that, I, I don't want anything to do with it. And to be honest, it just makes me sick. So when you fix those things, then I'll be interested in hearing your worship again. So obviously, I think that's an important thing for us to consider because we want to make sure that our worship is acceptable, pleasing to God. Amen? Amen. I mean, because that's the point of why we get together. If we're not doing that, then there's really no point in us getting together at all. So we've talked about some of those things that are going to be required of us if our worship is going to be pleasing to God. The first one is that it needs to be wholehearted. So kind of the opposite of that, what we talked about is just offering God stuff that's just kind of half-hearted that we're not really passionate about. And obviously that's not going to be the worship that's acceptable to God. Uh, we also talked about the, the disconnect that sometimes happens between, like we'll come together on Sunday and, and we'll talk about and sing about that we need to love our neighbors and then we'll go out and do anything but love our neighbors. Um, speaking of our neighbors and loving our neighbors, I hope that you'll keep the family who lives directly across the, from the church in your prayers. They had a pretty serious fire yesterday. So when you go to leave here today, you'll see a giant blue tarp on top of it. That's really where the bulk of the fire was. Um, so the, the gentleman who lives there, his name is um, Mark. So if you remember Mark, and his grandson's there all the time. His name's Dominic. So if you'll remember Dominic in your prayers, and then his mom, Erica. Um, if you'll remember them in your prayers, I'd appreciate it. But we need to love our neighbors, right? That can't just be something that we give lip service to. We have to love our neighbors. And um, this morning, I want to give you the last of those uh, things that really are covered in the book of Amos. And it's just really one thing. And um, it's always good when the pastor has one point. I know we like three-point sermons, but I just have one point today, and it's about our attitudes and the motivation for why we get together in worship. How many of you knew that your attitude really matters to God? Did you know that you can do the right thing and have a crummy attitude about it, and you might as well not do the right thing? Because your attitude really does matter to God. The Bible, of course, has lots to say about our attitudes. Probably the most well-known one is in Philippians. And in fact, once you find this passage, you'll want to 
Just ask your neighbor for a $20 bill. Just stick it in the Bible because we're going to come back to it several times. If they don't have a 20, just say a 50 will do. Okay, I'll take that. It's not what I was supposed to ask for, but I'll settle for a 50. We're going to come back to this passage several times, but this is um, verse 5 through 11. And it's talking about attitude. You speaking to us. Um, look at your neighbor and say, he's talking to you. He's talking to you. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Man, that's a tall order. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God, died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to a place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this morning, I just want to talk to you a little bit about our attitude. And really, I only have two kind of sub points today. And this is just kind of like family gathering time, all right? So I'm just going to be completely vulnerable and transparent with you today. And I really think that in our local church and kind of in our region, I think that these are the two biggest attitude adjustments that the church needs. So we're just going to call it like it is, okay? So because I'm, I'm, in, I'm vulnerable with you, because I'm telling you that right up front, it's probably going to be something that gets on our toes. But understand, it gets on my toes too, all right? So these are the two things the attitude adjustments that I think we need in the church and in our local church the most right at this time. So the first one I want to talk to you about today as far as an attitude adjustment is in obligation. Everyone say obligation. obligation. I don't know if you've ever known somebody um, like this, but have you ever known somebody that approaches church and worship like it's just an obligation? Have you ever known anybody like that? Just an obligation. We treat our time in God's house like it's time in the big house. If you know what I mean. And I'm not talking about that state up north. I'm not talking about them. But sometimes we treat our time in God's house like it's a prison sentence. So we started off today. We're singing about there's joy in the house of the Lord. You know that there really should be joy in the house of the Lord. Like it should be a horrible indictment against the church. When we lack joy and gladness and we get together and it's like, let's sing one more dirge and can bury us all. I mean, that should never be true of the church. There should be joy. There should be gladness in the house of the Lord. We certainly shouldn't do it like it's a prison sentence. Maybe you've heard things said like this. I'm only here because I have to be here. Uh, or maybe this one. How long are you in for? It all depends on how long the pastor preaches this morning. I'll let you know. I'll let you know when he's about to wrap up. In one of our assignments, not the one you're thinking of, but a different one. Um, you know, sometimes people will just say, it's not just weird things. Sometimes they're absolutely cruel. Things that people will say to pastors right before they're trying to start a service. 
So in one of our assignments, we had a guy who would actually filter all of that. You couldn't get to us because he would stop you and he would say, hey, what in the world are you going to talk to him about? No, you have to wait. And man, that was such a gift to us. But in this assignment, I didn't have anybody in that role. So one of my leaders makes a beeline. They, they kind of come right as service is getting ready to start. They make a beeline up to the platform and I'm getting ready to start. I'm going to help lead worship. I'm going to... Um, be ready to preach in a little bit. And they say this to me. I'm not making this up. I'm not exaggerating. There was nothing else that they said. They said to me, Pastor, I want you to know I'm only here as an obligation. <laughs> and they turned and walked in their seat. Like nothing had ever happened. So I immediately turn around and be like, Welcome. It's so good having you here today. Well, most of you. One of you is a jerk. <laughs> I'm only here out of obligation. You know, that day I couldn't tell you one thing that I said. And I promise you, this individual couldn't tell me one thing that I said either. Because let's face it, if that's your attitude, you probably aren't going to hear anything that's going to change your life. So if we only come together out of obligation and without any kind of expectation or without any kind of joy or gladness or without the realization that God is so incredibly good and that he's great and he's worthy to be praised, if we just come because, hey, I've just got to be here we probably should set our expectation pretty low about encountering God and having that change our lives because it needs to be more than just an obligation. So um, that particular individual, I'm sure that they didn't think a whole lot about it. In fact, I'm fairly confident. I don't think it was malicious. I just think they didn't think before they opened their mouth. Um, but if I'm going to be real honest, that comment right before trying to start worship, it rattled me. Now, I, like I already told you, I'm the pastor. I'm not supposed to be rattled by stuff, right? And if I am rattled by stuff, I'm never supposed to let you know that I was rattled by stuff. Um, you know, like the old commercials, never let them see you sweat. Well, that was written for pastors. Never let them see you sweat. So this guy comes in and just blasts me. And then he goes in the seat. And then, I mean, you can imagine what his attitude was like through worship. But anyways, he's back there and all, hell no. It just, but it, man, it rattled me. And... I thought about that for a long, long time. And while I don't remember what I said, and I'm sure he doesn't know what I said, I will never forget what he said. I'll never forget it. And I had a lot of questions that ran through my mind in the days and probably weeks that followed that. Some of those questions I'm not going to tell you about because they could probably just stay in my mind. I don't need to tell any of those questions. Uh, I certainly don't need to tell you those questions, but there were questions that ran through my mind. I'm willing to talk to you this morning about two of the questions that ran through my mind. One of those questions was this. You're obligated to who? To whom do you feel obligated to be here? I mean, I told you, it's going to be vulnerable and transparent, right? Like, who are you obligated to? And the second question that I had was this. Now, I, I understand that part of it is, you have to understand this about me. I spent some time in the South. 
like I lived in Texas for a while, and Danita will dispute this with me, but I lived in Georgia for a while. So I spent some time in the South. I'm right, she's wrong, but I spent some time in the South. But I did live in Texas. Even she won't dispute that, I lived in Texas. So part of it is because I spent some time in the South, but the other question that really ran through my mind, at least that I'm willing to talk to you about, the other question that ran through my mind was, since when did an obligation become such a negative thing? Now, I understand that in the North, you're like, what in the world are you talking about, right? Because that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us. But still to this day in the South, obligation has a different sound in the South than it does in the North. So I understand that part of the reason that I had that question of, since when did an obligation become so negative, was because of the time that I spent in the South. And, and we'll talk more about that. I think it'll make more sense in just a second. But those were really the two questions that I was thinking about. To whom are you obligated? And since when is it such a bad thing to be obligated? When did that become such a bad thing? You thought I really had an answer to that second question. I don't. I thought maybe you did. You could help me out. But anyways, uh, when did it become such a negative thing. If you're not convinced that obligation has become a negative thing, at least in our context, if you don't believe me, here's what I want you to do over lunch today, okay? I want you to look around the table and find the person that you love the most. And I want you to make eye contact with them and look them square in the eyes. And I want you to say this to them. You're an obligation. <laughs> Try that over lunch, okay? You're an obligation. I'll go ahead and tell you right now, I have couples counseling sessions available on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday. Don't call me on Thursday, but Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday. Go ahead and schedule one now. You're going to need it. And you want to get one before they fill up. But go ahead and tell them that you're an obligation. It's just become something that's negative, but it's not always been that way. In fact, the, the word obligation actually first started showing up in um, language in the 1300s. I don't know if you knew that. I don't even know if you care. But it showed up in the 1300s. And in the 1300s, it meant a binding pledge, a commitment to fulfill a promise, or to meet the conditions of an agreement. And it really first started showing up in two forms. It showed up in a Latin word, which meant to bind, to bandage, or to hold together. And the other group of people that used it in the 1300s, maybe a little bit later, but was in Old French. And there's an Old French word that basically meant the same thing. It meant to be engaging or pledging or literally the act of binding together. So let me just kind of connect that all together. Do you know that when you got engaged, some of you, you're married or you have been married. You know that when you got engaged that you became an obligation. Because you were binding together. That anytime you've had a close friend, how many of you have ever had a close friend? Like at any point in your life, you've had a close friend. You know that because you became a close friend with somebody that you were, you were an obligation. Because you were bound together. There were, whether you verbally communicate those things or not, you. You entered into an agreement with them. There was a vow between you. There was a bond between you. And because of that, you were an obligation. When you got married, you were an 
You're an obligation. You were obligated. And just in so many areas of our life, one of the express reasons that Jesus came to planet Earth, I mean, there were many of them. He came to planet Earth to preach the gospel to the poor. That's what Jesus said he came for, preach the gospel to the poor. But he also came for the express purpose of binding up the brokenhearted. So Jesus came out of obligation. In old French and in Latin, that's the word that they would have used. Why did Jesus come? He came out of an obligation. Well, he was obligated to who? To you. He was obligated to you. Think about that for a second. So we're all familiar with the expression more so in the South. If you've been, if you spend any time living in Texas, you're very familiar with this expression. If you spend time in Georgia, you're very familiar with this ex expression. And I think even people in the North are familiar with the expression, much obliged. Now it's kind of like cowboy commentary, right? You know, you kind of picture a cowboy with his boots and spurs and his hat, takes his hat off, much obliged. I mean, you can picture that, right? Much obliged. Well, you know what that means, right? So literally what that means is it's not thank you. That's not the same thing as thank you at all. To say that you're much obliged is acknowledging that you've been the recipient of something pretty incredible and that you're now obligated to them to repay that in like kind. That's what it means to be much obliged. We're all familiar with that expression. So, um, so think of it in terms like this. You know, when we say much obliged, it's you're basically saying this. In light of what's been done for me, I think the only reasonable thing for me to do is to respond and do something for you in like kind. In fact, I think maybe. I read something similar to that at one point, maybe. I don't know. What's something like this? Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, for this is your true and proper worship. What's the point of all of that? Here's the point of all of that. When you think about it, even though I'm sure that, that that gentleman who came in right before service and said, I'm only here because I'm obligated to be here. And even though that was something that I certainly thought about for a long time, I'm not sure there are any truer words that have ever been spoken than that. Because here's the reality. When we walk into this place, we should be reminded of the goodness of God and the greatness of God and all that he's done for us. And it should be the only reasonable thing for us to do is to say, I'm obligated to respond to that in like kind. With the same amount that Jesus was willing to lay down his life for me, I should be willing to lay down my life for him. And I should be willing to lay down my life for the people that he loves. So I think it would be safe to say that we are obligated. When we consider all that God's done, the only reasonable thing for us to do is to give him all that we have all that we don't have, all that we ever hope to be, we give that all to him. And then the Bible says that that is worship. See, it really comes down to attitude, right? Well, the second attitude piece I want to talk with you about, there's only two. So you know what that means? I'm almost done. 
Like I had an entire thing that I was going to talk with you about worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And it's really good. And maybe you'll get to hear it one of these days. And maybe you won't. I just don't know. But I, as I was working through it and preparing, the Lord has said, you know what? you got to know when enough's enough. And get through the second point, and that's enough. So it's going to be enough because I'm not going to argue with him. I've tried that, and it doesn't work very well. So I'm almost done. But I think I saved the most painful for last. We're going to be real honest. Again, I'm just trying to talk about attitudes that I think are the most toxic and are the most life-threatening attitudes that exist in the church. So I think that if we show up out of obligation, not in the sense of, hey, I'm obligated because God's been incredibly good to me and I just want to respond to that. I'm not talking in that sense, but if we just come in and be like, I'm only here because I have to be. Well, then we're probably not going to get a whole lot out of that service. Amen. But this one, I think, is even a greater threat, and it's consumerism. Consumerism. So consumerism is first and foremost a culture of expectations that draws us into unhealthy ways of relating to material possessions. That's the big fancy definition. If you look it up, I'll save you the time. That's what it says. So it's a culture that draws us into the habits and tendencies of looking at material possessions in an unhealthy way. That's what, what consumerism is. And it, when we start looking at material things through that lens, we look at them in an unhealthy way because that, that object only exists to make me happy. That's consumerism. So that all of everything around, the only reason that it's here is to make me happy, to make me feel good. That's consumerism. But here's the problem with consumerism. It's a very fine line between looking at things and the only reason that this thing exists is to make me happy. And there's a very fine line between that and we start looking at people and saying the only reason that they exist is to make me happy. That's consumerism. And it plagues the church. So it's one thing to look at things and say, the only reason that this thing exists is to make me happy. But I'll tell you what, if you want to ruin your marriage, look at your spouse with the lens of the only reason that you exist is to make me happy. If you want to ruin your marriage, just, just try that. That's consumerism. And it's a major, major problem. You don't think it's a problem? Well, let me just be real direct for a second. Consumerism, or at least that idea that the only reason that something or someone exists is to make me happy is the very heartbeat of cancel culture. You know, all know cancel culture, right? What drives cancel culture? Consumerism. The only reason you exist is to make me happy. And when you don't make me happy, I have no use for you anymore. That's cancel culture. And it comes down to consumerism. So this idea that, hey, you only exist to make me happy is what drives rape culture. Now, I have to be very careful here because I have some very strong feelings about this subject at this particular moment in our region. So I need to be very careful about it because I don't want to be political. But I will tell you this, that it is impossible for you to pick up a newspaper 
in the greater Cleveland area, it is impossible for you to pick up a newspaper without seeing how this is being played out right now in our culture, in our town. And I won't get political about it, but all I will say about this is the entire idea behind rape culture is you only exist to make me happy. And when you don't make me happy, I no longer have use for you. That's rape culture. And it's driven by consumerism. I look at things and things only exist to make me happy. And then there's a fine line between that and people only exist to make me happy. It's consumerism. Well, you can see how that would be a problem, right? I haven't made you uncomfortable enough yet, I can tell. I don't know if you realize this, um, for a long time, when I started in ministry, they had these quotes that would say things like this. Um, they would say that you do know that in 50% of evangelical Christians, this is when I started ministry, 50% of evangelical Christians, that would be us, in case you're wondering, that's us. Evangelical, we believe the gospel of Jesus, that that's the only way that we can have a relationship with God, that's evangelical, that's us. When I started ministry, 50% of evangelicals struggle on a consistent basis with pornography. When I started ministry 30 years ago. So in case you're like, okay, well, we're, we've turned the corner. Things are improving. <laughs> you're funny. So you want to know what the current statistic is? Over 80% of evangelicals. Now, and before we get the idea that, hey, that's a man's problem, right? Men struggle with pornography. That's not what the studies show at all. Now, granted, it might look different than it does for men with women. I understand that. But, I mean, 80% of evangelicals struggle on an ongoing basis with pornography. Let me tell you about the pornography pandemic that's plaguing our nation. Ready for what's driving all of that? It's consumerism. The only reason that you exist is to make me happy. And the moment you don't make me happy, I don't have any use for you anymore. It is a plague that's destroying the church because people have intrinsic value, not just because of what they can or cannot do for you. They have intrinsic value. Here's the greater problem with consumerism. Um, you know, you would have to be like an ostrich and stick your head in the sand and just not be willing to admit reality around you to be in any kind of church leadership and not realize that we live in a culture that's very consumeristic. So then the tendency and the temptation for church leaders is because we live in this culture that's very consumeristic, we feel like we have to compete with that. And the way that you compete in a, in a culture that's consumeristic is you have, to, you have to be a vending machine. And you have to make sure that you have the right stuff so that people can push the right buttons and get what they want. Because if they don't push the right buttons and get what they want, they'll go somewhere down the road and push the right buttons so they get what they want. So the tendency then is that we do all of our programming into what is it that people want so they can push the button and get what they want. That's consumerism. And that will destroy the church. You want to know why? That's not what we exist for. 
That's not our purpose. And it will mess us all up. You know, the problem is that when we live in this consumeristic culture for very long, we end up singing songs like um, Carly Simon sang about. You're so vain. You probably think this song is about you. Well, by the way, it was. <laughs> You're so vain. I bet you think this song is about you, don't you? And we end up singing these songs and the, having these thoughts that it's all about me. And just so that we're clear, that is diametrically opposed to the gospel of Jesus. Basic Christianity 101 is it can't be all about me. It has to be all about him. It has to be all about him. And then it has to go one step further. Not only is it all about him, it has to be about the people that he loves. Oh, and by the way, the last time I checked, that's everybody. So it can't be all about me. It's got to be all about him. And I have to, I have to start caring about the things that he cares about. And I have to start hating the things that he hates. Because it's all about him. It's not about what I want. There's this amazing verse in Philippians chapter 2. I think this sounds vaguely familiar. Have we talked about Philippians chapter 2? There's this amazing verse. It's verses three and four. It's just before the passage that we read a second ago. It says this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but humility consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only to their own interests, but also to the interest of others, but made him uh, the other interests of others. Um, and then I've got a verse that doesn't even fit. In here. I don't even know how that happened. So we should not be do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but we need to think about other people in ways that we can serve them. The second expression of this consumeristic tendency that I think that we're living in is what I like to call I did my time mentality. I'm not sure if you've ever heard this, and one of our assignments, not the one you're thinking of, we were in desperate need for people to work in the nursery. And uh, we had this... This lady, she had been fantastic. She had worked in the nursery. She was one of our leaders in there. And so we really needed somebody to kind of step up and help us get through a spot. We were training other people, but I just needed, I needed somebody to stand in the gap for a second. So I went to her. I knew that she was fantastic. And I said, be willing to do that. And she said, hey, listen, I did my time. It's time that somebody else step up and serve. I understand that. There's truth in that. And we're working on that. But I have a need right now that you can help with. But all you want to tell me is, hey, I did my time. Okay. So what that looks like in the church is that folks who used to serve and advance the kingdom, we somehow get to the point that we feel like we have the right to sit back and allow everyone else to serve us. You see how that's consumerism, right? That everything exists to serve me and make me happy. So, you know, we come and we don't really find any way to serve. We don't serve in the church. We don't serve in our community. Why? Because after all, everything and everyone only exists to make me happy. So I'll just sit back and take it all in. 
Can you think of somebody like that? I can't. Personally, I can't think of one single person like that, but I've heard that they do exist. Somewhere out there in the world, I've heard that they do exist. And um, but what I can do today is, while I can't think of one person that might be described like that, I, what I can do is I can give you countless examples of people who haven't fallen into the trap. How would that be? Would that encourage you a little bit? So you know what we're not supposed to be like. We're not supposed to be consumeristic and that everything exists just to make me happy. And we're not supposed to get to the point that we say, okay, even the churches exist only to make me happy. So I'm going to come and sit back and take it all in. And I'm not going to find any way to be engaged and to help and to contribute. I'm just going to sit back and take it all in. After all, the church exists to make me happy. <laughs> By the way, I'm being, that's, that's sarcasm. If you don't have an appreciation for sarcasm, let me help you. You might leave here with some really twisted thoughts. I'm being sarcastic. The church doesn't exist to make you happy. But let me give you some examples of people who haven't fallen into the trap. <clears throat> and the, the amazing thing about the people that haven't fallen into the trap is none of them are going to be happy about what I'm about to do. There isn't going to be one of them that says, I'm so glad that he did that. This beautiful lady who sits back here, she's in a lovely shade of purple today. Um, Donna Gonzalez, she's going to hate the fact that I did this, but you'll have to forgive me anyways. You have to love me because Jesus loves me, Donna. You have to love me. You have to love me. Have you ever scratched your head and say, why in the world does Donna Gonzalez sit on the very back row? Well, I'll tell you why she sits on the back row. I'll tell you exactly why she sits on the back row. Because Donna comes every Sunday and she's prayed a prayer all week long that God would send the church families with young children. And while I enjoy having Donna in here, Donna would really have her druthers if a family with young kids came and she would quietly get up and excuse herself and go take the children to the nursery and minister to them. Notice what I did not say. I did not say she would babysit them. What I said was she would minister to them. You know what that is? That's an incredible example of somebody who gets it. That we need to be the kind of people who love him and love the people that he loves and do our very best to serve them with excellence. That's what that is. Or you see this lady, it's actually one of my favorite dresses. It really is Adele. It's one of my favorite that you have. It's one of my favorite dresses that you wear. It's kind of a red and black, a striped dress. I, it just, it looks great on you. It's one of my favorite dresses that you wear. Um, so you have Adele. I've been here a long time. Like some of you, like, you're like, amen, you have been here a long time. We keep hoping that you'll change that. But I've been here a long time. But long before I came here, Adele was a part of taking a group of people to victory. 
She gives up one Thursday a month, and it used to be so convoluted and confusing that no one could figure out when it really was because it was the third Thursday, but only when the third Thursday followed the third Wednesday. And if it wasn't the third Thursday that followed the third Wednesday, then heaven help you knowing if you're supposed to take the meal to victory or not because it's only the third Thursday that follows the third Wednesday. But what if there's not a third Wednesday? Well, then it's not your week. And it's so confusing and so convoluted that we messed everything up. And then someone got smart got filled with the Holy Spirit, and they said, you know what, let's just forget that. It's the third Thursday, okay? It's just the third Thursday. So count the third Thursday, and that's the one. Forget this. It's the third Thursday, only following the third Wednesday, and then the, who, who can follow all of that? The third Thursday. So for the third Thursday of every month, for as long as I have known, Adele, Jan, and Elaine, and sometimes others, but the three amigos prepare food, they drive it to victory, they serve food. Why? Because they understand it's not all about them. And that part of our worship is just loving him so much that we love the people that he loves and we serve them with excellence. So, you may not even know this, but I mean, if you look around today, like there's, like you'll notice when it doesn't get done. But like if you go to use the bathroom today, there's toilet paper in all the stalls. Did you know that? They're there, there's toilet paper. Now, if it's not there, you're gonna know it and we're all gonna have problems. But there's toilet paper in all the stalls. And if you look around, go ahead, look around. You notice that, I mean, the carpets need to be cleaned. That's different. That's a different conversation. I'll talk about that with our church board very, very soon. We'll talk about this. But like, do you notice that they're, they're swept? That there's not debris and junk all over the sanctuary. There's not junk and debris all over here. I know that they need cleaned. That's a different story. But that we've done the best that we can to make sure that the carpets are swept and that things are put in place. And you know who does all of that? You know who does that? Danita does that. You know why she does that? She does it because, you know, she's married to the pastor of the church and, you know, somebody's got to do it. No, that's not it. That's not it at all. Actually, you want to know why she does it? There's two reasons. One, just to be real honest with you, she does it because she knows that if it doesn't get done, that I'll do it and that I don't have time for it. So she wants to make sure that she serves me by making sure that those things are taken care of and she does it with excellence. But the other reason is because it's part of the way that she worships Jesus. Why? Because it's not all about her. And at some point, you just have to get to the point that you love him so much that you just want to do whatever you can, even if it means scrubbing toilets. You just want to do that, and you want to do it with a good attitude because it's part of the way that you worship him. And it's part of the way that you say to him, hey, I love you, and I want to do the best that I can to honor you in everything that I do. So attitude is incredibly important. Do you know that I think that you could come to a quote-unquote worship service, you could do all the right things, you could stand at the right times, you could kneel at the right times, you could wave your hands at the right times, and I think that God could look at that and say the entire thing is just 
absolute trash in his eyes if we're doing it with an attitude that stinks. I think our attitude really does matter. So here's the point. I think, I'm just, I mean, this is just us. It's just us. But I think one of the things that we need to pray into. So if you take the opposite of doing things out of obligation, what, what would the opposite of that be? I think that the prayer for us then would be, God, would you so fill us with joy and gladness that we say with the psalmist, I was glad when they said unto me, let's go to the house of the Lord. Because there's just something good about being together. There's just something good about being in God's presence and with God's people. And, and these are the best moments of our entire week. And we look forward to them. And we look forward to expressing our thanks and appreciation to God and to worshiping him and, and getting so in love with him that we just want to love the people that he loves. I think that the prayer for us today, one of them, is that God would fill us with joy and gladness. Like on an individual basis. That we just have joy and gladness. I don't know if you realize this, but you know, like, the pandemic has taken a toll on all of us. I don't know if you realize that, right? I mean, even if you're like, no, I'm super tough and I've been unaffected by it. You've been affected by it. And all that has gone with it, we've been affected by it. And I just think it would be good for all of us just to say, God, would you fill us with joy and gladness? I think that would be a great prayer. Um, the second thing is I think that it would be just good for us to kind of pray into this idea that just to affirm, I think, that everything and everyone doesn't exist to make me happy. Did you know that? I know that's a newsflash to some. Did you know your spouse doesn't exist to make you happy? Did you know that? <laughs> and some of you are like, please stop, please stop. Did you know the church doesn't exist to make you happy? Actually, you wanna get real technical about it, the church exists to make him happy. And that's it. make him happy and um, anyways I had a ton of other stuff that I was going to talk to you about I'm not going to because I just heard the Lord say Phil you got to know when enough's enough and he's like that's enough so it's enough amen amen so we do this with me we just stand right where you're at for a second and in your own way I just want you to have a little bit of a conversation with the Lord. And I want you to ask really for two things. Just these two things and pray into them a little bit. The first one is this. God, I really need to be filled with joy and gladness. Lord, would you restore to me the joy of salvation? Would you remind me again of all that's been done for me? Would you remind me again of all that the cross paid for? And would you fill me with joy and gladness? All the spirit of heaviness, Lord, would you take it off of me today? And would you fill me with joy and gladness? And I don't need to hear you, um, but I think maybe the Lord does. Would you just say, 
you know, for all the times that I have believed or acted like everything and everyone exists to make me happy, would you forgive me for that? And I don't want it to be about me. I want it to be about you. I want to do everything that I do for the glory of God. So help me to do that. Help me to be so in love with you, Jesus, that I love what you love and I hate what you hate. And God, help me to see the value in the people around me. Help me to see the value in the person who drives me so nuts that I just want to drink their lemonade. But help me to love them the way that you do. Into. It wasn't on the original notes, but man, it sounds fun, at least in my head. Once you kind of picture that cowboy with me again, right? You know, we've got the cowboy boots, the spurs, the hat. And here's the conversation I want you to finish with. I just want you to tell the Lord this Lord, I'm much obliged. When I think about all that you've done for me and the price that you paid so that I could have life. And that to the fullest, when I think about all of those things, the only reasonable thing for me to do is to give you everything that I have and ask you to be the Lord. And Lord, I just want you to know that I'm much obliged to you. I'll do anything you need me to do because you've been so good.
Jesus and everyone said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.